The message for today, there is hope. There is hope. But you're not going to get it from your news media outlet, or some of you who still buy newspapers, you're not going to get it from that. It's this book that gives us the hope. And so we're in the book of Isaiah, chapter 3, where we're going to read verse 10 and verse 11. And here is a time where Israel, let me say it this way, they're in trouble with God. They brought the trouble on themselves, as people do, because it's not God's intention to bring discipline, chastening, and all that, but he does it because he's our father. Anyway, they brought these problems on themselves. Yet in every situation, in every community or nation, there's always those that don't sell out. They serve the Lord, as I just mentioned during this song, during the hymn. Their trust means obedience. It's the same word. So it says there in Isaiah chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, Say ye to the righteous, that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. I'm just going to stop there. Actually, we could read verse 12, which won't have much to do with this message. But look at verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Obviously, this is speaking to men. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. In verse 12, just to make a mention, we see that come in the past in our society where the verse that says, children obey your parents has been reversed. And it says, parents obey your children. I heard this wise statement and it came from a rabbi and said this, if you raise your children properly, you can spoil your grandchildren. But if you spoil your children, you'll be raising your grandchildren. Pretty wise. And very true. Well, I don't want to go on that line just right now. I just wanted you to see just one of the judgments, and there's many, of course, that God can and will bring on the people that leave the path. When Jesus said, I am the way, we know he means the path. I am the path. And look at who's leading the people astray. It's the leadership. The pastors and preachers and teachers and so on. And there's nothing new under the sun. It happened in the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament. It's happened throughout Christian history. And it's happening now. Not only in our government, but in our churches. But there is hope if you will trust and obey. And let's just put the two words together. Not to separate them and say, I trust. I'm learning how to obey. Which is to some degree true. But the will is intact that trusting and obedience is the same thing. Real biblical faith is not simply saying this little prayer. Real biblical faith is obedience. They're one and the same thing. So there is hope. Say to the righteous, it shall be well with them. And say to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. Well, who chose these paths? People do. We choose every day throughout the day what the outcome of that day, then the next, and weeks and months and years are the summation of the sum total of our choices, our choices, what we have chosen. Trust, obey. We're not going to put an and in there. Trust is obedience. As I gave you the illustration of Harry Blondin walking across a tightrope there in Niagara Falls many years ago. Read about him. Did some astonishing things. But to get inside the wheelbarrow, that's when we start to battle with, well, I don't know about that. What if he falls? We had not fall, and he never fell. That's real trust. And real trust in this book and in Jesus Christ is not just simply talking or singing or, for me, preaching and coming up with clever sermons. It's doing it. It's being all in. And there is no other way. That's what the songwriter said, and I agree. There is no other way can't sing your way there. You can't even pray your way there. Unless your heart is all in the wheelbarrow. That obedience and trust to you, they're the same word. I don't know in the dictionary you'll find them as synonyms. I haven't looked it up. But I know biblically and spiritually speaking, trusting and doing are the same thing. The exact same thing. Listen, I will share with you today what I'm convinced. If there's nobody else in this room that's convinced, I'm fully convinced. We're at the end of the end days. I'm not going to name a date because I don't know. I don't know what day Christ will come. 
I don't know what day the Antichrist will actually physically be on the scene and do the things we're going to read about in just a moment. I don't know that, but I know we're in the season. And I know that trusting is more than just saying that you trust. It's doing what Jesus said to do or what God said to do. Now, we do this by his grace. Don't misunderstand me. We're not doing it without his aid, without his help. But nonetheless, trusting and doing are the same words. So you read or you watched an interview this week with Elon Musk, who is the richest man in the world. There's nobody beyond him, richer than him. The owner and inventor of SpaceX just launched a rocket this week. And well, he bought Twitter for $44 billion. And may, in the process, have just saved our First Amendment rights. If you don't know much about that, I'm not going to talk about that social media platform. But when I say everybody's on it, I mean everybody. Start with the Pope, the president. Everybody is on that platform. And when he bought it out for $44 billion, he may have just saved our freedom of speech. And I don't know that he professes at all. I've never heard him profess to be a Christian. But for me, these type of events just show to me the providence and sovereignty of our God. The one we sang about, the one we were singing about, and the one I'm preaching to you about. The sovereignty of God to use whomever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, to get his plan to come to fruition. And it will. It will. Because God is God. So you may have seen or read the interview that Elon Musk had with Tucker Carlson about artificial intelligence. Now I know that we have a couple of computer geeks here with us. We have a couple in the church. So you're going to understand this better than many. But just to get the concept, and I'm going to read you just an excerpt from the interview. My friend Grant Jeffrey, for example, years ago, he's passed on now, been home with the Lord for a few years, wrote about this back in the 90s. Surveillance society. And we're under constant surveillance. Not as bad as China, but nevertheless, we are under constant surveillance. And a lot of it is coming through this artificial intelligence. Let me just read a couple of excerpts from the interview. Elon Musk being interviewed by Tucker Carlson. And in the interview, Musk revealed that Google has long planned to create an AI god. Those are his words, Musk. And that Musk has... repeatedly warned the company's owners against it. Musk stated that Google's ultimate goal is to, quote, create digital superintelligence, or what he describes as a, quote, digital god. Later in the interview, he told Carlson that it is, quote, absolutely conceivable that artificial intelligence could take control and make decisions for people, which ultimately might lead to civilizational destruction. Musk also told Carlson that, quote, they're training the artificial intelligence to lie. It's bad to comment on some things, not comment on other things, but not to say what the data actually demands that it says. In another article, it states, meanwhile, current Google CEO Sundar Pinchai has admitted that the company's chat GPT competitor, Bard, has developed quote, emergent properties, meaning that it is learning things that it has been programmed to know. That's your computer. Well, not just your computer. It's learning things it has not been programmed to know and that the artificial intelligence behavior is something he does not fully understand. This is something Carl Sagan talked about back in the 90s, wrote about back in the 90s. They were concerned about the technology how fast it was developing and that they weren't being able to rein it in. So it's not something new. As a matter of fact, nothing really here is precisely new. It's just that it's advancing very quickly, very quickly. An artificial intelligence God that makes decisions for us. In Revelation chapter 13, at verse 8, well, verse 7 and 8, we read about this beast, the Antichrist, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Now just stop there for a moment. And that's where the title of this message comes from. There is hope. It will deceive everyone whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world or what we loosely call as a Christian. And we better tighten up, in my opinion, it's my opinion, 
We better tighten up that definition. I read about so many people that their handles say Christian and believer and all this, and then I read their posts, and I say to myself, how in the world can they profess that they know Jesus and write the things they write? That's called deception. We'll talk about that in just a minute. In the same chapter of Revelation 13, beginning at verse 14, he deceived them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six, or six six six. What we're reading does not match precisely what the Bible says, but it's very close. Very, very close. For example, we know now that computers can generate an image of somebody else, put that face on your face, and it could be literally anything, so that people would identify you as that person when it was computer generated. The fact that we have what we used to only see in science fiction movies, these three-dimensional beings that are just completely fabricated. They're not real. You know all this. And it's happening now. And it's advancing quickly. That's why I say, as my own opinion, that we're at the end of the end. I don't mean we're near to the kingdom as much as we're near to... We're either at the threshold or we've just taken one step into the threshold of the book of the Revelation, which talks about a great tribulation, the rise of an antichrist, a world government, a world religion, all of which is, well, I could say this way, ordained of God and part of God's plan, but not of God. Deceives those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. I was reading, just last night, I just happened to come across in my Bible, Jesus teaching in parables. And the apostles asking him, why do you teach in parables, in riddles? And him saying that it's not for them to know. They are not ordained to understand. Now why is that? Because of this thing called grace or prevenient grace that's given to men. And when they spurn God, God doesn't give them any more. So he says to the apostles, to you, it's given to understand what I'm saying, but to them, it is not given. And that's what exactly we're going to see now, and we will see it in the future. When they say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction. And we'll talk about these things. Amazon One, been out for several years now. You can do your shopping and just scan the palm of your hand, that's it. It knows who you are, has all your financial records, which you gave voluntarily, and just scan the palm of your hand. I read to you a few weeks ago an article about J.P. Morgan. They're now testing a technology or beginning to use a technology where you scan your hand or your forehead. What an interesting coincidence that that happens to be written in the 13th chapter of the book of the Revelation. And by the way, that's what makes the Bible unique. Its ability to accurately predict the future. Yeah. Accurately predict the future. So let me just say this right now. So if the things that are written that are frightening in the Bible to you are true, but so are the good things. Concentrate on your faith in Christ. Not in men, not in flesh, not in blood, but in Christ, who is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. But he also said, I'll come for my church. And I'll read that to you in just a little bit. If I go, I will come again. And it's going to happen. And now, at least for me, when I'm reading scientists, heads of physics departments and all that, that are entertaining intelligent life outside of our planet in this galaxy or another, somewhere in the universe, these are men that are prestigious in their fields, recognized as experts, recognized as being the smartest of the smart. And they're saying, yeah, we could be visited by alien beings. I would amend that by saying, we're going to be visited, but not by an alien. We're going to be visited by the creator of the planet. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're looking when you look through your telescope. You're seeing the nascence of the beginning of these things that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. And when you see these things begin to happen, look up. Because your redemption is very close. Huh. There is hope. Just don't look for it in news media. 
Half of the time, they don't know what they're talking about. And when they do, and I've told you this before, but it's because I don't want you to forget it. You rarely read, and I can say never in secular media, do they say, except that God's in charge. And that includes Musk. I don't know where he stands with God. I'm not, I'm not going to judge him. I don't know. I can only say that all these things factor in, but God is not factored into your equation. The providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the attributes of God, the God who has been controlling history, is controlling history now, and will control history right directly into eternity. Amen. That's why there's hope for those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And I sincerely hope that your name is written in that book. Amen. There's plenty of people sitting in churches, listening to messages, listening to sermons, his names are not written in the book of life. They've been invited. It is assumed that they're Christians. But I cannot judge, nor can you, in the final analysis, who's actually saved, who's not. Only God knows that. Only God knows that. Sure, there's a lot of evidence to know a real Christian when you meet one. But nevertheless, at least for me, I leave and reserve all the final judgment to God. Except what was obviously written in the book. If someone outrightly rejects Jesus, well, that's a pretty good sign. They don't know him. I'm talking about people who say, I know him. I know him. And in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, and I'm paraphrasing, you say you know me, but I am going to profess to you, I never knew you. Because they heard his words. Read it, it's in Matthew 7. They heard his words, but they never did what he said to do. So the house was built on sand. And you don't build houses on sand. So you have Amazon 1, you have J.P. Morgan, there's a lot of other agencies out there. And it's all now coming together. And let me say this one more time. This should not frighten the person who's deeply rooted in the Bible. Because, as I remind you through the years, what was judgment for Egypt was deliverance for Israel. Two sides of a coin. We see all these things happening. We are again taught not to fear what other people fear. Not to fear what other people fear. I mean, I could say this loosely, though. You know, obviously, I understand anxiety and depression. I've done 470 videos on it, and I have a compassion for that. But at least I could say it this way. Theoretically, we shouldn't have any anxieties at all. But we're human. And depression has come. And Jesus, the prophets, were depressed for seasons. But in the end, our foundation cannot be moved because it's ordained by God. It's ordained by God. And so there's hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. I don't know if you prayed this prayer as a child. I don't recall that I did, but I've heard it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should, this is little kids praying. If I should die, if you taught your child that now you'd be sued in the court of law. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Children's prayer. We see, just to give you just a little introduction here of what you already know, I'm just reminding you, we saw the Supreme Court overturn the Roe v. Wade for abortion, and uh, so many people applaud that decision. And then this week, they upheld the uh, abortion pill, Mifepristone, is that it? Which, when combined with Metoprolol, law, which that's probably not the right word, when you combine those two pills together, 50% of the abortions in the United States of America are from those two pills. So in a sense, and again, I can't judge the Supreme Court. In a sense, we're all clapping, but for what? It's still there. 50% of abortions are not done with surgical procedures. It's done with two pills. One of which the Supreme Court just said, all right, let it ride, let it stay. Don't put your faith in flesh. And the fear of man, the Bible says in Proverbs, it brings a snare. Do you think all these people, these lawyers, these judges, these politicians, do you think all of them are walking around? I mean, some, yes, are trying to do the right thing and don't care what you think? That's not the truth. They very much care about what you think. So on the one hand, they give you a victory and take it away with the other. In 2019 and 2020, the FBI reported that there was a 30% increase in murders. That's three years ago. So we see all these things. You see, last week, Hundreds or at least dozens of young people running through the streets of Chicago, wrecking people, running into tutors, knocking them down. Nothing is done. Alec Baldwin, what a surprise, he gets released of his charges. Others brought up on multiple counts of things and have no chance because it's just the way things have been forever. The injustice of man, but this much you can count on, God is just. Amen. And his justice will not sleep forever. 
And so maybe we could take a lesson here if you just give me your ear for a second from a little poem written all oh, in the beginning of the 19th century, the 1800s, by Mary Howitt. And it's advice. And this is a children's poem. Will you walk into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Tis the prettiest little parlor that you ever did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, and I've many curious things to show you when you are there. Oh, no, no, said the little fly. To ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stair can ne'er come down again. I'm sure you must be weary, dear, with soaring up so high. Will you rest upon my little bed, said the spider to the fly. There are pretty curtains drawn around, the sheets are fine and thin. And if you like to rest a while, I'll snugly tuck you in. Oh, no, no, said the little fly, for I've often heard it said, they never, never wake again who sleep upon your bed. Said the cunning spider to the fly, dear friend, what can I do to prove the warm affection I've always felt for you? I have within my pantry good store of all that's nice. I'm sure you're very welcome. Will you please take a slice? Oh, no, no, said the little fly, kind sir, that cannot be. I've heard what's in your pantry, and I do not wish to see. Sweet creature, said the spider, you're witty and you're wise. How handsome are your gauzy winds, how brilliant are your eyes. I have a little looking glass upon my parlor shelf. If you'll step in one moment, dear, you shall behold yourself. I thank you, gentle sir, she said, for what you please to say. And bidding you good morning now, I'll call another day. The spider turned him round about, went into his den, for well he knew the silly fly would soon come back again. So he wove a subtle web in a little corner sly and set his table ready to dine upon the fly. Then he came out to his door again and merrily did sing, Come hither, come hither, pretty fly, with the pearl and silver ring. Your robes are green and purple. There's a crest upon your head. Your eyes are like the diamond bright, but mine are dull as lead. Alas, alas, how very soon this silly little fly, hearing his wily, flattering words, came slowly flitting by. With buzzing wings she hung aloft, then near and nearer drew, thinking only of her brilliant eyes and green and purple hue, thinking only of her crested head. Poor foolish thing. At last up jumped the cunning spider and fiercely held her fast. He dragged her up his winding stair into his dismal den within his little parlor, but she ne'er came out again. And now, dear little children who made this story read, listen, to idle, silly, flattering words, I pray you never give heed unto an evil counselor, close heart and ear and eye, and take a lesson from this tale of the spider and the fly. That's called seduction. Over the years, Christianity has been seduced by false teachers and false prophets that promise the people things they cannot deliver and they will not deliver. Today, we live in a culture, a church culture, where you've got to promise people how quickly you can get them in and get them out. Well, you know what? I grew up that way. In a church denomination that had two different types of services you could go to. One was shorter, one was longer. And what do you think most people preferred? The shorter one. Get me in, get me out. I've done my duty. I went to church. You don't go to church. You are the church. You go to a building. It may be a pretty building. And so now these cunning teachers, these spiders to the flies, they come. I'll give you a little speech. A little speech. And a lot of music and all these different things. As our brother shared once, you could even have a chocolate malt. Go in with your mocha latte. Dress as you please. No sense of reverence and awe and respect here. We're only talking about God. Now the church doesn't change because the church trusts and obey. People who trust Christ obey Christ. And let me make it clear so I say this again. I am not saying a certain time makes you holy. I've been stabbed in the back, cut right across my throat by more people with shirts and ties than anybody else. But I am saying there are standards in America that should make us show respect. And let me tell you something. Don't you ever show more respect to your employer who you think 
takes care of your money than you show to God with punctuality and everything else. You show more reverence and more respect to God first, foremost, and always. And I'm not advocating that any of you do what I'm about to say. I'm really not. But I'm telling you that on more than one occasion, I've told the boss, not in these words, you can take your job, well, you get the idea. And you know why I was able to say that even when I had little kids at home and my wife was a stay-at-home mom? Because I believed that God would supply all my needs. And you know what? He always has. And he always will. And you know why? Because he's God and there is none else beside him. All the gods of the nations, every religion are idols. There's only one true God. I would be remiss in my duties. I'm not a guest speaker. I'm your pastor. I don't know if you know that, but that's who I am. I'm your pastor. I'm telling you today, don't you show more reverence and fear and respect to your boss because you won't walk in so much late and all this and show lack of respect and reverence to God. That's advice. That's how I live. I believe that's how you should live in this hour of history. I really do. In my imagination, I'm picturing millions of people flooding the altars, crying, praying to God for mercy for this world we live in. And it's perversions. It's prostitution. I don't mean the physical prostitution. I mean it's moral prostitution. It's political prostitution. But that's not what's happening. And why? Because the scriptures tell us that in those days many shall give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And many, or some rather, shall depart from the faith. A falling away, which the Bible says must happen first before an antichrist, or the antichrist, could be risen up. And it's happening right now. Oh, I still love Jesus. The person I see out in the street there tells me who doesn't attend our services anymore, which is fine. Well, God can be found in many, many places. But since I know them and I was their pastor, I know it's not the truth. I watch their behavior. I watch how they've changed. They're like Peter who once followed right. He was in lockstep with Jesus until the moment Jesus said, all of you will betray me tonight. And he said, I won't. I'll die for you. And then when he was following Jesus, he was following afar off. So finally he gets to warm his hands by the fire. A little girl asks him, you're one of them. So I don't know what you're talking about. And somebody says, yeah, your dialect. You're not from here. You follow the Galilean. And then in the third account, he starts to curse and swear. I'm telling you, I don't know the man. And Jesus just glances at him. I pray, I really do, that that never happens to us here in America. And I can't say that it will, and I can't say that it won't. But I know that you have to make up your mind now. You have to make up your mind now that no matter what happens, you're not going to recant, you're not going to go back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of light. And the children of the day, we are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity for those of you who used to consume copious amounts of alcohol to then one day sit back and watch someone who's drunk and how stupid they act and then say to yourself, is that me? And then hear the answer coming back, yep, that's you. That's what you do. And it's an awakening. Now, I gave up drinking so long ago. I don't know how long. It's been a long time, 40-something years. But part of my awakening came from watching other people getting drunk and then remembering things I said and remembering things I did and realizing I was putting a thief in my mouth to steal my brain. Well, the metaphor is there. We are not of the night. We're of the day, so watch and be sober in your thinking. And watch for the spiders on television, not just the news media, but the ones that say, hi, I'm a prophet. Hi, I'm... Now, whatever they call themselves. That's a spider just saying, come a little closer. Before you know it, you're serving another Jesus, not this one. And another Jesus is not going to take you to the real father. I'm not going to debate or even furnish a lot of proof on this here because it's a non-essential doctrine for salvation. But it is an important one. When the scriptures say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Beginning at verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, which means dead, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice, in Christ. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. But notice the last line. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Christ is coming. He's coming for his own. He's coming for the church. And I'm of the opinion he's not taking any of the buildings with him. Who has the prettiest looking building? So then we have to go around and look. And I'm not against all that. I like looking at great architectural structures of where churches meet. The snack bar is not going. Starbucks is not going. I mean the one that's inside the church. It's those whose names are written in the book of life from the Lamb of God or in the Lamb's blood. They will hear Jesus' voice saying, come up here. Come up here. Because as I mentioned before, every prophecy of the Bible has been fulfilled in the past in a literal fashion. And it will be fulfilled in a literal fashion again as I'm supplying you with evidence. Swipe the palm, swipe the forehead. This has never been seen before in any other generation, but it's being seen now in our generation. And it's written in Revelation chapter 13 and many other things that we've covered over the years. Trust and obey for there's no other way. No other way. To be happy in Jesus. There's hope. There's hope. Some people think that we're really stupid. Atheists are classic for lampooning, which is a violation of logic anyway, which they almost worship. Then they violate it at will. They think we're stupid. I see the evidence here. I've been reading these scriptures a long, long time. And I'm watching what's going on. Human nature, politically, socially. I didn't even mention the weather. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. I'm no fool. I can see the parallels between what Jesus said, the apostles wrote under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, and the times in which we live. Some men trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. The school of the prophets... They were talking about the fact that we know you're going home to Elijah. God's going to take you today. And up you went in a chariot of fire. Now the same people who lampooned that story in the Bible are looking into outer space saying, we're going to get visited by aliens. What am I missing? You believe your science and the imagination that you add to your science, but the Bible's wrong? We're no fools. God took Elijah, God took Enoch, and Enoch walked with God and was not. Philip was taken from the chariot, speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch whom he baptized, and then boom, he was in Azotus. Paul went up to the third heaven and came back down again. These things happened. According to the Bible, they happened. And it's going to happen again. What you want to hear on that day when Jesus comes is these words, come up here. You don't want to show up for a service over here and there's two, three people. And you realize it happened and I'm still here. Timing of the rapture, I told you, it's a debatable subject. I respect people's opinions during, after, whatever. But because God saved Noah from the flood, I believe he will spare his people. Because we've already been judged in Christ on that cross. And I still believe it. I told you, every night I walk the dog, especially on cloudless nights, I look up at those stars. I see the sovereignty of God. I don't see God asking us for his help. Can you help me keep the Big Dipper in shape? It's starting to fall apart. What do I do? I will get it together. We'll have a board meeting. <laughs> Congress will meet. Oh, boy. So you don't want to be found sleeping at your posts. Jesus taught about this, the wheat and the tares. And I won't go through that parable with you now, but I will say this. He slips into the parable. The tares were sown while men slept. 
When preachers, like myself, neglect to do their duty, which is to be a student of the Bible, if you're mixed up about what I'm supposed to do, let me know. Maybe I can help straighten you out, but I'm not mixed up about what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a student of the Bible. I'm supposed to be prepared when I come to the pulpit. I'm supposed to be prayed up, ready to teach the word, and to be ready in season, out of season, to reprove, to correct, to instruct in righteousness. That's my job. That's my job. How many times have I heard this? I thought he was going to shake my hand. People say, I thought he was standing at the back door and all this. It's not that I, you know that I'm friendly. <laughs> you know I'm a nice guy. You know that. I'm just simply saying when it comes down to what I'm supposed to do and what people think I'm supposed to do, I've got a problem. I'll be ready. I'll give you the best sermon that I can give you. Others can give better ones, but I'll give you the best one that I can, and I'll be ready when I come to the pulpit. Amen. But I will tolerate no more nonsense that I've tolerated for over 40-something years. But I thought he was going to do this. And I thought, you thought wrong. You should have read the Bible to find out what a preacher's supposed to do. And preacher gives it away. You know how many hours goes into studying? I do other things. But my primary purpose is to preach the gospel. Because that's what brings the healing. That's what brings the edification. How many times over the years have I had people come to me after a sermon and say, you know, I was going to call you up this week. I had all these questions, and you answered every one of them in the message. Well, don't fall asleep, people. And don't fall asleep during one of my messages. This is not the time for sleeping. Sleep in the house. If you're narcoleptic, we have a Jesus that heals. People who embrace false teachers are divisive and can be deadly. People who call out false teachers are not divisive. It is the nature of all hypocrites and false prophets to create a conscience where there is none and to cause conscience to disappear where it does exist. The words of Martin Luther. In other words, the devil, the spider, he will make you feel guilty over things the Bible does not address. And you feel certain that you're going to hell, you're not going to heaven. When that's not what the Bible says. The devil will create a false conscience. Join some other organization and they will tell you all these rules and regulations and when you ask where they are in the Bible They will dismiss you from the church get out just because you asked I've never been afraid to answer any question Anybody's ever asked that I've pastored and I'm still the same way you meet a pastor who won't answer your questions You have legitimate questions. It's time for you to leave. I know pastors You can't question them because of whatever they'll throw you out of the church when you have a legitimate question Anyway, that's what Martin Luther said. But in this time in which we live, and I will say to you that it's a difficult task and it's not something that I relish at all. But as we go along further and further, I have been feeling more inclined that it becomes a duty to point out the false teachings of so many churches and church leaders. A duty. This is not something I enjoy. I really don't. But I fear that in certain cases, if I don't call out by name these people, some of you can slip into error and put yourself in jeopardy with, again, the one true Jesus. You may not be familiar with the name of Costi Hinn, but Costi Hinn is the nephew of Benny Hinn. Costi's father and Benny Hinn are brothers. And for years he lived in the lap of luxury, in the prosperity gospel, the so-called name it and claim it. And then one day... And part of it was due to meeting his wife. She started to raise questions within the Bible that got him thinking. And then he had what, well, I'll just simply say a conversion. And he wrote a book. And I'd like to read you just a little bit from his book. Remember, this is Benny Hinn's nephew. He worked with Benny Hinn for years. I sang with a man once, I won't mention his name, who sang with all the big name players that you've ever seen on television, all the prosperity faith people. Everyone. This is what he told me. I've sang with them all. But he heard me preach one night because we were on national television. And he said, you know, when you were preaching tonight, I just said to myself, just one more phony preacher. He said, but the more you preached, I was thinking to myself, this man really believes this. And I was talking about God could not help but to judge America if we lived the way other nations have, including Israel. Anyway, what he told me was this. He said, I've been on their yachts. I've been in their mansions. All of this here, he says, and I could tell you every single one of them. If I mentioned his name, you'd know him. He's a famous Christian singer. He says, and I could tell you they're all phonies. But even come from him is not as powerful as coming from the nephew of Benny Hinn, who served with him, as I just mentioned, for many years, or a few years. 
He says he got flipped upside down after he was married and realized prosperity preachers were, quote, living off poor people and manipulating rich people. He goes on to say, it doesn't matter who you're with on the Instagram account. It doesn't matter what kind of car you're driving, what kind of stage you're on, how big the screen is behind you. If you've got reflective lights and audio engineers making you sound like you're Joel Osteen every week, this is the words of Costi Hen. I don't care who you are. God can work at any time, in any place, in any way. That's a quote from his book called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And then he goes on to say this. Costi does not hold back in his intent for the book. Quote, I want people to see that the prosperity gospel is damning and abusive. It exploits the poor and ruins the lives of some of the world's most vulnerable people. He goes on to describe the prosperity gospel as, quote, arguably the most hateful and abusive kind of false teaching plaguing the church today and says, quote, all roads the prosperity gospel paves lead to hell. Now, if I say that, but he was there and he's related and he's right. In his book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, he names where this all began. I won't go through those names, but I'll pick it up where he writes. These men became the household names for name it and claim it theology and the prosperity gospel. Today, they are revealed as heroes in the faith by my uncle Benny, Joel Osteen, whose father John Osteen loved Kenneth Hagin, Joyce Meyer, Maurice Cirillo, and many others. How did the prosperity gospel get so popular? This still doesn't quite answer the big question. How in the world did this scam? I call them con artists. I had people leave my account on Facebook because I called some of their heroes con artists. But he's saying it's a scam, and he was in it. How did this scam, posing as Christianity, get so popular? It's one thing to know where it came from, but seeing how it came to fool so many people is equally as important. The prosperity gospel appeals to the deep longing of every human heart for peace, health, wealth, and happiness. And I agree with him when he says there's nothing wrong with wanting a good and happy life, but the prosperity gospel uses Jesus as a pawn in its get-rich-quick scam. The prosperity gospel sells salvation and false hope. But true and lasting peace can be found only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I would tell you, buy his book, read it. Because like I said, if I say it, they just kick me to the curb. But when people who have been involved in it and are related to the people they're naming in the book, which, by the way, he's doing in an ironic spirit, a peaceful spirit. He's not trying to expose and kick his family around. He makes that clear in the beginning of the book. I admire him for that. But as I said, he's doing what I have now come to realize must be done. We must now come out. I must come out and start saying, this is wrong, this teaching, and so on. And God will build his church. You know, I want to just tell you once again at this point, and this is the truth. I'm really happy being your pastor. I really am. And I tell people that too. I tell other people, I've got good people that sit in front of me. And your faithfulness and your dedication and your sincerity and all that. Even if you interrupt me during the announcements. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm being serious when I say this. I don't want a half-baked, partially in, wasting my time. When you haven't been here for the lessons. You haven't been here for the preaching or the teaching. Or what you're looking for something that this Bible is not offering. Let them go. Let them go. But yet there's a part that says, well, what about their eternal life? What about their situation before God? then let them come and let them hear and let them believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Not a make-believe Jesus. Because if you have a make-believe Jesus, one of your own imagination or somebody else's, then you have a make-believe salvation. And you have a make-believe heaven, one you're not going to. And that comes from the book. But there's hope. Trust and obey. I really believe, I truly do, that Jesus is going to come out of the sky. I truly do. And I think that, and this is just imagination, but I, I think that it may not just be one big call, like, hey, all you guys, come on up. <laughs> but we may actually hear our names individually. That's just my imagination. Now, there's only a few people that call me Raymond, and my mother is one. But maybe I'll hear the name Raymond and think, yeah, and see all of you and millions of others all ascending into the clouds. He should come before I die. Well, that would be something. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ. But he must be the one that's found in this book. Pastor, how do I find out? Here's the real one. 
Bad news, you got to read. Oh, you got to read. You got to read. Got to read the book. You don't have to be there all day long. You don't have to read 50 chapters a day. Three a day will do it. Read and read and read. But when you read, say to yourself, and this is what I do, how does this verse apply to me? I've always read the Bible that way. It doesn't matter if I'm reading Old, New Testament. How does it apply to my life? How does it apply? How am I to be more courageous or more dedicated and so on? You should read it the same exact way. You read it and ask, how does it apply? And then you do it. You stumble, you fall, you make mistakes, you backslide. We all do. Like Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher, he said this, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. It's a good thing for preachers. That's a good axiomatic statement. Good credo. As an illustration, also this week in the news, there was an alpine skier. And he was all dressed with his gear. And he had a video recorder on his helmet for whatever reason. And he was moving on a flat surface on some mountain somewhere. And he was really, really moving. But what he couldn't see, and it was too late when he saw it, was a crevasse. And the camera was on it, caught it all. And you hear him say, oh, whoa, huh? you know, it's French. So I don't know what he was saying. And down and down, she's snow flying down. And you can look into the hole. And somehow... Again, by the providence of God, his skis caught. Now, you can watch it. It's, it's out there. You go on the internet and you watch this guy skiing. I was like, whoa! Boom. And his skis caught a little ledge. And that's where the video ends. And I'm looking down in the video, and you still can't see the bottom. How did he get back up? I don't know. But it reminded me of people who last night went into eternity without Christ, with no bottom. And it is our obligation to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. And it's especially my obligation as a preacher. I am not to worry about the results. After I've just told you how much I love and appreciate you, if you never came back, I will still be here Sunday next. I don't control the results or the outcome of preaching and teaching and prayer. That's in the hands of God. But this much I do know, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Charles Spurgeon. This hope. But we must not go around saying, I've got hope, they don't. And I don't care. I told you this last week and I'm saying it again. We are all obligated to tell the truth. We are all obligated to pray for our loved ones and those that don't know Christ. To pray for our country. To pray for those that are in power over us. We are all under that obligation. We are all under the obligation to tell the truth when we're confronted with a lie. Not just me. You know, the new sheriff's in town. Let him do everything. Let him walk down there at high noon. It's the obligation of everyone who makes a profession of faith. And I told you last week, you don't have to be arrogant. shouldn't be arrogant. You don't have to go around standing on tables and shouting and acting like a maniac. You don't have to be a fanatic. All you have to do is follow Christ. And believe me, they will find you. They will find you. Just the fact that for many years I've had the habit of bringing a Bible with me literally everywhere I go. I got them in my car. I got them all over the place. I did it when I worked a secular job. Why is that? Because I wanted to impress everybody with my holiness? No. Because I wanted to read it on my lunch break. Put one in my locker and the man says to me, You read that old book? It's so old. I said, the sun is old. Still gives the same heat. He had no further questions. On another job, I had another locker. Put my Bible up there. Man says, young man, You read that book? Well, that's why I put it in my locker. So I can read it at lunch. Or if I'm on the truck making deliveries, then I can read it when I'm on the truck, when I take a break. Well, it's this, that, and it's the other thing. I say, really? Is it? Have you read it? Well, have you read it? I'll tell you what. When you read it, come back and talk to me. But until that time, you have no clue what you're talking about. Amen. So let's just drop the conversation and get to work. I want you to leave here hearing these words. You have hope. Amen. You have hope. Am I wrong when I say to you there's a lot in life that's depressing, makes us anxious? There's just days when you just feel so discouraged. 
I had an experience or two like that just in the last week or two. Yeah, that's the truth. And then I recalled, and this is the beauty of knowing the Bible. I can do it when I'm mowing my lawn in the car, just bring verses to mind. And when I was starting to feel discouraged, and I'm sure Satan was behind that one, and a little of this and a little of that, I was reminded of what God told Joshua in chapter 1. Don't be dismayed. And don't be discouraged. And again, paraphrasing the intent. Well, when he's talking to Job, he says, you gird up your loins and act like a man. Well, this don't apply to the ladies. Act like a man, because we're going to talk man to man. I like that kind of stuff. I really do. I like that kind of talk. We're going to talk man to man. Well, I know I'm not wrong when I say that. I know some of you are struggling with discouragement, depression. But you've got to trust and obey. That's the duty that's upon all of us. There's no turning back. So as we go before the Lord today, remember that you have hope. Others, they don't. We have hope. Let's take a hold of that hope once again. I just admitted to you, I go through periods of discouragement. I want to go so far in the woods that no one can find me. That all my neighbors have four legs. Then I say to myself, well, what about your duty? And I remind myself of Joshua, of Caleb, of Samson, of course of Jesus, of the apostles. Every one of them martyred for their faith. Let's encourage ourselves that we have hope. Father God, today in Jesus' name, we come before you to once again lay hold on the hope that is set before us. We see the signs, we see the times, and discouragement comes, and doubt, and depression, and weariness. But we are called to have hope. When you said to us, Lord, that we should not let our heart be troubled, we should say, yes, Lord, I will not let my heart be troubled. I'm tempted to be troubled by what I see, by what I hear, but I will not let my heart be troubled. Father, help us today. Help those who are sitting here, those that are watching by way of television, those that are listening on the radio. Help us, Lord, today to take hold on that hope and to not ever let go of it. No matter what comes, and there's more to come, that could upset us. Help us, God, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. You are our strength. We bless you. We bless you for the privilege of being able to understand what's written in the book. That privilege is not given from your own parables. That privilege is not given to everyone. We thank you, and we have much to thank you for. We bless your mighty name. We give you praise. Church, today, in your struggles, in your discouragements, in your depressions, and all your battles, your physical battles, all these things, mental chaos, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in Christ. And just refuse to give in. And God will honor that. Because God cannot change. And God cannot lie. So Father, we thank you and we bless you and we praise you. We live in difficult times. But we should love you no less, no matter what anybody else does around us. With all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And remind us this week also to love one another. With all that's in us, help us to be compassionate, to be merciful, kind, tenderhearted, and so on. If we do that, we will fulfill everything written in the book that's concerning the law and your laws. Even so, we say, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And we give you all the praise, give you all the glory, and give you all the honor today in Jesus' name. Can everybody say amen? Amen. Amen.